Are you on the go and only have a short window to peek at the local headlines? We've got you covered. The KOSU Daily Podcast brings you Oklahoma news every weekday in a condensed and accessible way. Head over to Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe to the KOSU Daily to get the scoop on the latest Oklahoma news. For KOSU News, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with Republican political consultant Neva Hill and civil rights attorney Ryan Kiesel joining me over Zoom video conference. Governor Stitt joined Texas Governor Greg Abbott on a trip to Israel for what they are calling a solidarity mission. We don't know much about the visit, except it was coordinated by the Israeli consulate in Houston. It would include a series of diplomatic meetings, and it would be short, only about 12 hours. Diva, what do you think about the decision for this trip? Not unusual. In fact, uh, the New York governor a couple of weeks ago uh, had a similar trip, uh, a show of solidarity, a show of uh, support. So um, this was in the aftermath of, um, I think it was 18 Republican governors that had sent a letter to uh, President Biden, basically not only pledging their support for the state of Israel, but uh, uh, also just uh, expressing their outrage over the appalling attacks uh, not only against Israel's sovereignty, but the innocent civilians that lost their lives. So um, I, you're right, uh, Michael. I mean, not many details, which is not unusual on these types of in and out uh, um, what they call solidarity missions or uh, certainly uh, something that I think we will probably see more of. Uh, in this instance, we'll see what uh, what is said afterwards. Uh, Governor Abbott uh, has been very forceful in in uh, what he's been doing in the state of Texas, uh, Governor Stitt here in Oklahoma, other governors uh, trying to be very proactive in their uh, not only in their comments but in their show of support for Israel. Ryan, well, and you know, and what is happening in uh, Palestine and Israel right now is truly a human tragedy. I mean, we're looking at. You know, as, as Neva said, the, the terrorist attacks that, that happened back on October 7th, uh, where you know, thousands of Israelis, innocent uh, Israelis, were, were murdered uh, by terrorists along the Israeli uh, border with, uh, with Gaza. You know, that is you know, something that will, I think, you know, stick with, you know, the, the images and the stories that we continue to hear from that day will, will stick with uh, people around the world for probably as long as we're alive. Uh, and you know the reactions to the to that and the solidarity with uh, Jewish people around the world and with the government of Israel and its efforts to protect innocent people uh, is is I think expected and um, is, is 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 definitely warranted at this time. At the same time, we're seeing around ten thousand Palestinians that have been killed in the Gaza Strip uh, as Israel has responded to these terrorist attacks. And I think it's important to remember that. Almost, uh, you know, the, the vast majority of these individuals that are being killed in Gaza are also innocent civilians, much like the Israelis that were killed along the border with Gaza by the terrorists uh, that were backed by Hamas. Uh, and so I think that one of the things that we're seeing on, on, the, on the state side here that is very disturbing is an increase in anti-Semitism and an increase in, in, in uh, Islamophobia. Um, and so, you know, while it is very typical for governors to uh, to take trips like this, to demonstrate solidarity. Um, nothing in the Middle East is going to be solved 
uh, you know, the, the, the centuries uh, old conflicts, the millennia old conflicts that have existed there, the, the decades old conflicts that have existed since the uh, establishment of the, uh, the state of Israel, um, they're not gonna be resolved by the governor of Texas, by the governor of Oklahoma, by the governor of New York. Uh, but I do think that we need leadership here in our states right now. Uh, and we need to be able to, you know, defend everything from robust political speech, but also defend our people from uh, attacks based upon who they are. And I think that that's where I would like to see Governor Stitt's leadership uh, immediately and over the, over the next coming weeks and months as this conflict plays itself out uh, for who knows how long. Uh, but we have to stand against the anti-Semitism and the growing Islamophobia that we're seeing as a response right here in our own backyard. And I think it is important, Ryan. I mean, the, your your point is well taken that elevating the awareness about not only what is going on in the Middle East, but the the increased threats uh, on on the Jewish community and other communities here in our country as a result of uh, of what's taking place. We're seeing governors such as Governor Abbott who expedited, I think, uh, um, over $4 million in funds uh, that he took from his public safety office uh, to provide enhanced security for Jewish organizations, uh, uh, synagogues, uh, Jewish schools, and other, uh, other organizations in Texas. He also took, uh, by executive order, a, direct, a directive to all uh, state agencies in Texas to refrain from purchasing goods that were produced or exported from uh, the Gaza Strip or other, uh, or from frankly any organization I think or any uh, state actor as he described it that had ties to Hamas. So I think we will see states become more and more uh, out front in in making these uh, in making these determine determinations to not only be uh, making statements on the international stage, but making sure that the the citizens in their respective states are also uh, assured of safety and that these issues can be addressed in a very timely manner. And and I hope that Governor Abbott and Governor Stitt and others will will continue along with that, but also say that. Uh, to remind the people of, of the 50 states uh, that Palestinians are not Hamas. I mean, while while Hamas may be made up of Palestinians, not every Palestinian is Hamas, far from it. And I think that that is a very important message that, that has to be communicated, especially as we look at you know Palestinian Oklahomans uh, that live here that have nothing to do with Hamas, that abhor Hamas, uh, that think Hamas is a terrorist organization and find their actions reprehensible. Um, you know, we have to make sure that that that, uh, that that statement is being made as well. And uh, we've seen, I think from Governor Abbott and others, you know, a lot of support for the state of Israel, a lot of support for the Jewish communities in those states. Very important. I think we need to see support as well uh, for Palestinians that have nothing to do with Hamas. State Superintendent Ryan Walters is breaking with Governor Stitt and supporting a candidate for president. Walters says he got a call from former President Donald Trump earlier this week. He says he supports Trump's run for the White House and plans to join Trump's reelection team. Ryan, what do you think of this endorsement? Well, you know, no surprise here. Two peas in a pod of narcissism and incompetence. Of course, he's going to support Donald Trump. The, the thing that's really sad about this is that when Donald Trump is done with Ryan Walters, he wouldn't even let Ryan Walters shine his shoes. Um, you know, he will use people for as long as they're useful to him. It's it's unclear how useful Ryan Walters can even be to him. 
any any votes that Donald Trump already has in the state of Oklahoma, he already has, uh, regardless of whether or not Ryan Walters says vote for Donald Trump. What this is really about is that Ryan Walters now gets to put on his Wikipedia page that he had a phone call with Donald Trump, uh, you know, that he got to talk to Donald Trump, the former president, on a phone call. Uh, and how awesome and exciting is that? Well, you know, that may be great for show and tell, uh, but it doesn't mean anything in terms of him being able to perform his job, the state superintendent. And in fact, it's more evidence that we continue to see mounting against Ryan Walters, that he's more focused on doing little gimmicks like this than he is on actually doing his job in the state. Neva. Well, no surprise. I agree, Ryan. I mean, uh, it, it, these uh, elected statewide elected folks are going to start uh, those who haven't already jumped on board a, a particular presidential campaign will probably be doing more of that in the next several months as we lead up to the to the uh, presidential preference primary here in Oklahoma. We see the early primary states start to unfold, uh, Iowa and other places. And in this instance with Ryan Walters, you're right. I mean, he's he has always been a, a supporter of uh, uh, of the former president. He is someone who uh, has um, uh, been really kind of along the lines rhetoric-wise, very much of what Donald Trump said on the education subject out on the campaign trail uh, when he first ran for president, and that is basically let's uh, uh, abolish or eliminate the Federal Department of Education and and talked about uh, the, the same things about woke and all of the all of those buzzwords and terms that are being used out there on the campaign trail. Uh, this is just a continuation, I think, of what we're seeing from uh, Superintendent Walters. And, and I think there's no question that uh, when you when you talk about early endorsements, just like we talked about when uh, Governor Stitt was the first governor to endorse uh, Republican Governor Ron DeSantis in his presidential bid, uh, it does have uh, it does have the element to it that early supporters oftentimes are at least in the conversation about uh, positions in a new administration if that person, in fact, is elected. So um, it, it makes for good coffee talk. It makes for good political chatter. Um, it, it soon wanes and, and we move on to other conversations. But for now, it's another subject that we've seen uh, uh, pop up this week with respect to Superintendent Ryan Walters. The resignation of a State Department of Education employee is getting the attention of a legislative leader. House Budget Committee on Education Chairman Mark McBride says he's concerned about a lack of transparency at the agency after grant writer Pamela Smith-Gordon announced she was leaving. Her departure is only the latest in a series of resignations since State Superintendent Ryan Walters took office. Neva, why would this get the attention of Representative McBride? Well, again, it's this ongoing conversation of the State Department of Education, the the head, <laughs> Superintendent Ryan Walters, and the ongoing questions that lawmakers still have with respect to specifics, uh, grants and other things uh, taking place at the at the State Department of Education. I think uh, uh, the comment made by Representative McBride in the in the uh, media reports this week about basically saying some words to the effect of he didn't really know what's going on. Uh, nobody does, and and uh, reiterating his belief that there is uh, a lack of transparency. So. I think the letter, interestingly enough, the resignation letter, which uh, apparently was leaked or given to uh, 
um, the Tulsa World initially and other uh, outlets uh, basically was very strong and outlined in very specific terms from someone who uh, even in the resignation letter said, look, I agree uh, with the philosophy. I agree with the direction of Superintendent Walters, but here are the reasons why I no longer can work at the State Depart Department and need to, to need to move on. And I thought it was interesting. The four major points or takeaways uh, were pretty startling. I mean, one of them was basically the lack of access to uh, I think what, what were described as essential platforms, which that means basically your ability to uh, be able to access those portals that you do grant submissions or you do compliance with, uh, that, that there had been difficulty being able to uh, access that and use that. Uh, she talked about uh, even the fact that there was she was refused a printer in the grants office, uh, which she believed was just uh, something that was necessary just for basic streamlining and efficiency and didn't happen. Went on to talk about things like uh, delays in approvals or signatures, the fact that she there were these ongoing issues with not being able to uh, get things uh, resolved, get things signed off on, uh, get conversations uh, to take place. And I think the final thing was uh, along the lines of just uh, the fact that um, uh, that there was no there was no ability for her to speak directly to the superintendent. In fact, I think uh, in the letter itself, she basically said, "Look, I'm I'm uh, much to my chagrin. I'm taking this uh, uh, I'm taking this opportunity to put this all in writing because I was refused the opportunity to have a meeting with you." So, um, you know, I think those things, whatever whatever anyone's takeaway. From a lawmaker standpoint, I think it again points to more questions than answers and sets up for um, what could be a lot of uh, uh, a lot of interaction and skirmishes or whatever it turns out to be with the legislature when they're back in session and they ask the State Department of Ed, the officials there, Superintendent Walters, to come forward and just let's lay out answer our questions, and then you move forward, you're an elected official, run your agency, you know, deal with the State Department board, uh, make things happen in education. But right now, unfortunately, the headlines are uh, more negative than positive with respect to another significant official uh, or, or employee within the department having just left. Ryan. Well, and, and like you said, Neva, this, is, this isn't some you know, liberal holdover uh, that, that's been in the department for 30 years that has some axe to grind against Ryan Walters politically. This is somebody who's, you know, part of the fan club. Uh, I mean, if, if you read this letter, Pamela Smith-Gordon makes it very clear that the, the entire reason that she came to the State Department of Education was to support Ryan Walters' mission and his agenda at the State Department uh, after he was elected. I mean, that's that's a huge deal. I mean, you're, you're the president of your fan club is the one, you know, stepping down and saying, you know, I'm not, I can't work here anymore because, you know, frankly, either you're incompetent or you're not engaged. She doesn't even know because he wouldn't respond not only to request to talk about potential resignation, but request to talk, to talk about any of these other things. She needed signatures on on grant applications uh, or or approval to move forward with particular, uh, you know, grant uh, programs, and no response. You know, when you when you see that radio silence, you see it in person. I think it's one thing to sit at home uh, and watch TV ads uh, during campaign season 
and hear a bunch of rhetoric and think, boy, that sounds great. Um, but then whenever you actually see it in person and you're, you're watching the rubber hit the road and you realize, wait a second, uh, there's no rubber here and there's no road. Uh, and what, what, what's left? Well, nothing. You've got this, this empty vacuum of leadership at the State Department of Education right now. And even his own supporters are recognizing this. I think that, you know, it's one where, you know, I would be very surprised if uh, Chairman McBride does not have Pamela Smith Gordon testifying in front of a legislative committee at some point in the near term, but also revisiting this conversation of impeachment. Um, I know that legislative leaders don't want to go there, uh, especially whenever you're, you're talking about, you know, Walters is running for governor, you know, perhaps maybe some of these legislative leaders may be running for governor as well. They're going to be campaigning for the same primary voters that you know probably support Ryan Walters more than you know they, they, the typical Oklahoman does. But when you look at the uh, the grounds for impeachment in Oklahoma, two of those grounds: willful neglect of duty, and the other one is incompetency. Those are those are two of the grounds for impeachment in the state of Oklahoma. Both of those seem to be more and more apparent every single day. And the evidence, really, that the difficult case here is having evidence that those things aren't happening. Where is the evidence that there isn't incompetence? Where is the evidence that there's not a willful neglect of duty? And right now on one side of the scale, you've got more and more evidence, including uh, this letter of resignation from somebody that's a core supporter of Brian Walter's agenda. Um, and then on the other side, there's no results or any evidence that anything is happening at the State Department that would demonstrate otherwise. So I think that you know, given this letter, the impeachment conversation should be back on the table for a lot of these lawmakers because it's going to be harder and harder to ignore this. You know, I thought it was interesting at the bottom of the resignation letter, the copy that I read, it had a quote from, uh, it was in quotes and attributed to uh, Superintendent Walters that basically said, uh, you can't fix problems if you don't acknowledge they exist. And I thought that was uh, a little unusual on a resignation letter to uh, kind of drop that at the bottom after your signature, but it did, I think, put a point on much of what she said in her letter and the fact that when you have someone that's a program manager over grants and, and uh, applications and compliance, Someone who had thirty years in in the in the education field, starting at the as a teacher, working up through the administration into the State Department of Education. Someone who brings credentials to the conversation. Again, you're right, Ryan. I think uh, Representative McBride has been uh, uh, hasn't been bashful about making making his uh, position known that the superintendent is someone who should come forward, should be transparent, and should answer their questions. And I don't think that conversation is going to go away as they get into the next session. The State Board of Education denied requests by Moore and Cushing Public Schools to change the gender designation of two students despite a court order. The request came after emergency rules requiring schools to go through the state board before creating gender changes. State Superintendent Ryan Walter says he doesn't foresee any situation where gender changes will be approved. Ryan, what are the legal ramifications of this move? Well, I think that if, if I'm the legal counsel for these school districts and I'm looking at a district court order that says do this um, and you've got an emergency rule, that says that the State Department of Education, the Board of Education has final say on this, uh, you know, I'm going to look at what, what does that rule say? Because this court order is based on longstanding legal precedent and, and statutes. And we've got this emergency rule. 
which does have the effect of law, but it has to meet the requirements for an emergency rule. So if you go back to September of 2023 and you look at this emergency rule and you begin to look at what what did it require? Well, it gave them this, uh, it gave the Board of Education this power to say yes or no, to approve these gender uh, change designations. And if you look at why they said that they were doing that, well, they said they were doing it because they wanted to pre pre uh, uh, preserve uh, historical uh, uh, credibility or whatever with records um, and consistency with records. Um, well, that may be something that the legislature could probably uh, legislate on if they want to. Uh, but if you, because the legislature has broad authority in Oklahoma to legislate on just about whatever the heck they want. But when you're an agency and you're adopting a rule, well, first of all, just even any rule, you can't just make your own laws as an agency. The executive department has to create rules to enact uh, and enforce laws that are passed by the legislature. So, well, what law is this enacting you're enforcing? And then if you go on to the emergency rules, well, emergency rules, they skip the regular promulgation process. There's no public comment. There's no hearings, um, and, and they are just, and they're effective immediately. Well, they may not be emergencies in, in like the, the normal uh, course of, uh, of events where we might say it's a rescue 911 situation, but you still have to demonstrate uh, under state law that there is an emergency, you know, that you have to have this rule to protect public health, safety, or welfare, uh, that you've got to do it to comply with uh, federal programs uh, or a federal law mm -hmm. or an imminent reduction to an agency's budget. You know, looking through uh, everything that the State Department put in, uh, in front of the governor to approve this emergency rule, it doesn't look to me like they really met that burden. So if I'm if I'm legal counsel for these school districts, I'm probably gonna err on the side of not wanting to be uh, crossways with the district judge telling me that I've got to do something. Um, but regardless of how that plays itself out, you know, the school districts may just throw their hands up and say, you know, Supreme Court tell us what to do. Um, and that, because this this will be litigated um, I think that the efficacy of this emergency rule will be called into question. Whether the legislature does anything about this the coming session, that's the bigger question. Do they pass a new law? Do they approve uh, this emergency rule? Because if they don't approve this rule by the end of the next legislative session, then the emergency rule will expire uh, at some point next year. So this still has to be approved by the legislature or they'll have to legislate on this at some point in the future. Those questions remain in doubt but I don't think that there's any doubt there'll be uh, litigation forthcoming on this. Neva. Well, I mean, I, I would agree. Litigation seems to be the, uh, uh, the kind of standard fare in these issues uh, across, across the country, states dealing with this. But let's remember in Oklahoma, uh, Oklahoma was the first state to outright ban the use of an X gender marker on state-issued birth certificates. It's one of four states that have banned legislatively, uh, that residents uh, ban them from amending their uh, gender designation on official documents, along with, um, I think, Montana, Tennessee, and West Virginia. So uh, the legislature has already made it very clear where they move on this issue. I don't uh, uh, see much indication, at least at this point, that there's any change uh, in thinking, at least from the majority of uh, 
uh, folks in the legislature and what's what the conversation has been thus far. The court's a different subject. Obviously, uh, we never know what the courts are going to do and how far uh, litigation may go through the court systems ultimately. But in this instance, I think you're talking about two in two particular uh, cases, two school districts uh, with uh, what I think, if I recall, was just one case each uh, that had come to their desk. And those uh, those district court orders, I believe, were even sealed. So we don't know a lot about it. And I think what we do know, as you're right, Ryan, being the attorney, <laughs> you you probably teed it up well in terms of laying the case that there will be more lit more litigation, not less with respect to this subject. A plan for Oklahoma County to build a new jail north of Will Rogers World Airport appears to have hit a wall. The county moved forward with purchasing the 50 acres of land for $2.5 million without talking it over with Will Rogers officials. The chairman of the trust overseeing the airport says there are several issues remaining to be, remaining to be resolved before the county can move forward. Neva, what are some of these issues? Well, I mean, I, I think the ones that kind of the top line issues that have been out in the, in the public were basically um, there were issues with whether or not the land had to be there were zoning issues, whether or not they the airport would be given assurances that they would not lose access uh, with the. Uh, uh, some of the current uh, places. And, and I think even there was some question about future uh, FFA grants. Would they be jeopardized potentially? Uh, you know, there, there were a lot of these questions you would think had been discussed or vetted early on as they went through this site selection process. The fact that there seems to be slow communication going on now between, at least in the initial reports, between the airport, airport trust and the uh, county, I mean, I think uh, Commissioner Brian Mon made it pretty clear that whatever goes on, we need to be with doing it with a sense of urgency because there is this, uh, uh, the, the clock is ticking. I mean, they need to be moving forward, uh, getting the issue of where it's going to be located, the new county jail, and then move forward with the uh, beginning of construction because uh, some of the monies that will be involved are ARPA funds. Those have deadlines in terms of at least initiating um, initiating the project and how long they have for the project to uh, uh, to be uh, finished. So, you know, it's clearly a pressure cooker situation. And I think uh, uh, they had a special meeting last Friday uh, trying to uh, move this along. I think they hired a consultant basically to do some of the things that I just said, find out what the issues are figure out can they be resolved, figure out what the implications is on, implications would be on construction costs. So uh, we're kind of back to the drawing board and the conversation of uh, more answer, more questions than answers. And we'll just have to see how quickly they can roll through this and get some movement on a either a new location or get the location that they originally picked, get these details and problems worked out to everyone's satisfaction. Ryan. And Eva, you're, I think you're right. This is a pressure cooker situation. And when you look at all of the obstacles that are ahead of uh, a project moving forward at the airport or uh, at one of these airport locations, it does seem to be unlikely that they're going to be able to meet or address all of those issues in the time that they need to be able to begin to you know, spend down these ARPA dollars uh, and to make this project work within a very compressed timeline. And also a timeline that needs to happen because of the awful condition uh, that the Oklahoma County Jail currently exists in. 
I mean, the, the number of detainees that, that are dying there is just uh, unconscionable. Um, you know, I, and we see this in, in jails across the, the state of Oklahoma. You know, I, uh, I represent families that have lost loved ones in, in multiple jails uh, across the state of Oklahoma, but Oklahoma County Jail, uh, that just the, the sheer size and uh, the number of people that have that have died in that jail, uh, you know, do make it a, a something that a project that has to be completed very soon. Uh, the longer that we wait on this, I think the longer that detainees and, and again, it's important to remember over 90 percent of people in that county jail are not convicted of any crime. They're there being held until their day in court. Um, and so. The, the number of, you know, these are people, you know, just like all of us, innocent until proven guilty. And you should not be sentenced with a potential death sentence just because you're arrested, convicted, or, or charged with a current crime uh, and, you know, aren't able to bond out because you don't have the money uh, or maybe you're, 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 you're denied a bond for, or bail for whatever reason. And you're stuck there, uh, you know, awaiting your day in court, which keeps to, you know, move further and further down the calendar. And every day that you're there is a day that your life is in jeopardy. That's not the way the criminal justice system should work, uh, and certainly not the way that pretrial detention should work. Uh, at the very least, uh, these detainees and, and the people that work there deserve safe and humane conditions. Uh, so you know, when, when does this happen? Uh, I think that the, you know, based on what we're seeing here, there are just way too many questions with the airport. I was really interested to see that there are currently four sites Still under consideration. You know, two at the airport. There are two different sites at the airport they're looking at. Uh, there's another 71-acre site that some private developers that I think have pitched to the to the county. And then they, the county also mentioned that the current jail location is also one of the four potential sites that they're looking at. Uh, I, I think in, until I read the story in the Oklahoman, I didn't realize that uh, that that was still even a consideration. I'd be interested to see what those plans might even look like. Uh, because as, as awful as that facility is, it does offer one you know, very valuable benefit, and that is its proximity to the courthouse and the ability of people that are detained in jail and their attorneys, in particular public defenders that have to move back and forth and, and district attorneys and assistant district attorneys that have to move back and forth between the jail uh, and the courthouse every day. Just the logistics become very difficult if you move the jail to a location that is so far away from the place where these individuals actually have their uh, charges adjudicated. Well, and, you, and one of the elements to the, the conversation as far as selection, site selection with the commissioners all along and the reason that the airport uh, locations uh, were in the mix as as uh, properties to be selected um, was the fact that they that those did not have the need for an environmental review or an environmental study and we all know that 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 whole process, if they get tangled up in a site selection where they have to go through the lengthy uh, environmental review process, you could be adding a year or years onto the onto the timeline to be able to build that project. And again, the the clock is ticking. So I think that uh, ultimately, uh, that you're right, Ryan. I think a lot of folks, uh, myself included, had not paid attention to the fact that they had left the original site where the jail currently stands uh, in the conversation. But uh, by default, I mean, it is not uh, totally impossible to think that it might wind up being the location. Who knows? I mean, we'll just have to follow this with interest and see where it goes. Ryan and Eva's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of KOSU, its staff, or management. 
Programs like this are made possible through support from KOSU members who are listeners like you. Consider a gift to KOSU in support of This Week in Oklahoma Politics at donate.kosu.org. Hey there, this is Ginny Mae Harms with KOSU, where we want to talk with you, not just at you. One way we connect with listeners just like you is through social media, like Instagram. So follow us at KOSU Radio, where you'll get a behind-the-scenes look into KOSU reporting, station news, and even ticket giveaways. Just follow KOSU Radio on Instagram, and we'll see you there.